Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Then um, I want to begin by telling you about a famous portrait that no longer exists. A famous portrait that no longer exists. It's a portrait of Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of the United Kingdom. And in 1954, uh, he turned 80 years old. So after decades of service to the government of the UK, um, he was at the end of his career, he was turning 80 years old. And so members of parliament got together to give him a, a portrait for his birthday. And this was not just any portrait, it was a big seated portrait. I mean, you're talking like as tall as a person, I mean, just a massive, massive artistic undertaking. And they hired one of the great painters of the day, a a painter by the name of Graham Sutherland, to paint this famous portrait. And so they were gonna present it to him on the occasion of his 80th birthday. But the problem, uh, the problem was that Graham Sutherland was famous for painting modern and realistic portraits of his subjects. These were not the cherubic faces you see enthroned in history museums of conquerors past not idealized, powerful versions of subjects. Graham Sutherland didn't didn't paint those. He wanted realistic portraits that would be hung on the walls of the museums for British history. No cherubic faces, but the real, authentic person uh, that would be in that portrait with their authentic poses and their authentic expressions so that they would be preserved not as um, sort of immortal cherubic beings, but actual human beings uh, and who they really are would be preserved forever. And so the day came and the portrait was to be unveiled and Graham Sutherland finished this painting of Winston Churchill. The elderly statesman saw it and he was aghast. It was the portrait not of a cherubim, not of a modern elegant statesman, but an 80 year old disheveled man. A man who sat slouched in a regal chair Uh, whose late-age paunch was undeniable, uh, whose clothes maybe needed a a touch of ironing and whose bow tie was slightly off-centered. And the wrinkles in his neck were so artistically rendered and realistically provided, along with the bags under his eyes and the wrinkles in his cheeks, you could tell that this was someone who took great pains to catalog every single flaw in the man that was sitting before him. Here was a man of parliament who had done so much for the people of the United Kingdom, the prime minister during World War II, the leader during the great time of trial. But the portrait made him look not just like he led like a tenacious bulldog, but he kind of looked like one too. And so the portrait was awarded to him in parliament in front of everybody in 1954, and he sort of graciously accepted it and then proceeded to take it home and stored away where it would never be seen again. And a few months later, Churchill's wife, Clementine, would then 
take the painting and have the, ser- the servants of the household chop it up and burn it in a fire with the household trash. They destroyed the portrait. That portrait no longer exists because it was such an affront uh, to the man who saw it. He couldn't stand to have it there as a reminder of his age, his imperfection, and everything therein. Now, you can still find the portrait online. You can look at an image of the portrait yourself. And if you do, I think you'll be very sympathetic to Winston Churchill. It is not a flattering portrait of the great elder statesman. But who can't relate to him anyway? Who wants to have all of their faults and all of their foibles recorded for posterity in an unflattering portrait? Who wants to be seen and recalled for everything that they are? Not just being seen and recalled for the good stuff. Who wants to be remembered for the good and the bad? We, like Churchill, want to be remembered not as um, the, the folks we were when we were 80 years old, but the folks we were, the people we were in our prime. There's some 80-year-olds here, and I know you feel the same way, right? Uh, that, that your prime is the time you want to be remembered. And uh, uh, someone with energy and verve and heroes and paragons of virtue. And that's not the whole story of any human by any stretch. But one of the hardest things of a Christian, friends, one of the hardest things about being a Christian, is that we are called by God to live in Graham Sutherland's reality. We are called to live and love and understand the world as it actually is, not as a flattering portrait that only remembers the best, not as a flattering ideal. We are called to understand and interact with the world as it actually is, to call a spade a spade, as one theologian uh, phrased it. And as much as we want to embrace this cherubic understanding of ourselves, the Bible invites us to something different a full and total examination of our hearts, uh, which leads to a spiritual personality check. That's what the Bible invites us to. And this is the context to what takes place in our reading today from Jeremiah, uh, one of the last prophets of God before um, Israel is um, destroyed by God's divine appointment. Using our portrait illustration, we might say that God called Jeremiah to paint an unflattering but realistic portrait of the people of Jerusalem during his day. And um, sadly, the, again, the portrait that is to be painted is not a flattering one. Here's how our reading begins. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an unhabited salt land. The implication here, friends, is that the people of God, they're not being the people of God. They are trusting in their own power and their own strength. They are ignoring God's law as they try to run their nation and their society on their own. The flip side to this image, though, right, like this, I think of it like a tumbleweed, you know, sort of dry and parched in the desert. Um, the, the, The opposite to this tumbleweed image of spirituality is the tree planted by the river. What does Jeremiah say next? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water and sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, nor does it cease to bear fruit. So you have on one hand the portrait of someone who's a tumbleweed, someone who trusts in their own power and their own strength and and Jeremiah says, you're like a tumbleweed. You're, you're unrooted, you're disconnected, you're floating around uh, in the desert wind. 
But then there's this tree planted by an ancient desert river, like the Nile, for example, or the Jordan. And there's always water there, and trees planted there, they grow, and they grow tall, they have deep roots. Jeremiah says that is what it looks like to trust in the Lord properly. And yet, um, that's not the portrait that Jeremiah has for the people of Jerusalem in his day, because he concludes his thought by saying this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So here's the reality that Jeremiah is trying to paint, the unflattering portrait of Israel in that day. What's going on is that the people of Israel, they are giving God lip service. They are duly offering their sacrifices in the temple, and they are saying that they worship their God. But they've imported a number of foreign gods to be worshipped as well. And these foreign gods, it's not just as if they're sort of rival competing alternative ways of living. These foreign gods demand things like temple prostitution, and they demand things like the sacrifice of children on altars of fire to worship those gods. And so while they're worshiping these false gods, the stratification of society is continuing to grow. The rich are oppressing the poor. They are ignoring God's command for the Sabbath to stop working on the one day a week. And they believe in their hearts that they are uh, massive palm trees planted by the river of God, growing and blossoming with deep roots. And Jeremiah is trying to say, no, that's not you. You are not that. You, O Israel, are the tumbleweed. And no good will come without your repentance. Not a flattering portrait, friends. An accurate one and an offensive one. It is not flattering. Lady Churchill had the portrait of her husband destroyed. And Jeremiah, too, uh, they sought to destroy him for this portrait that he painted. Later on in the book of Jeremiah, not long after this, Jeremiah will be beaten to a pulp. He would be thrown in the stocks. He would be eventually thrown into a cistern, which is a large underground water reservoir. And the hole would be covered up top and he would be left there to die. So this business of painting accurate portraits was not popular in Churchill's day. It was not popular in the ancient time. And it is not popular in our own day as well. So challenge for we Christians. Um, because in our modern time, uh, we are the era, if we're going to stick with this portrait imagery, we're the era of Photoshop, aren't we? We are the era of Photoshop. It's very easy, perhaps at no other time has it been easier, to present your virtuous and only your virtuous, attractive, strong self to the world while holding at bay the things that are actually going on in your life. Um, this became clear to me uh, in the 90s. Uh, this is before Photoshop was really even a thing. Did any of you take your kids or your grandkids to the Sears portrait studio, right? Was it as miserable for you as it was for me? Um, I was 11 years old, and my mother uh, took, uh, at the time, there were th I had two siblings, so there were three of us. There would later be a fourth Gerald sibling. He had yet to be born. That's how I know this was before the year 1997 that this took place. And so uh, the, the, the family, my mother took all three of us, got us all dolled up dressed us up in the most uncomfortable pretty clothing you could think of and took us to the portrait studio. I was whining at age 11 the whole time because my shoes did not fit my feet. I had had a growth spurt. My shoes hurt. Uh, my feet hurt in my shoes. So I was complaining the whole time about that. My little sister kept um, you know, fiddling with her dress and fiddling with her hair. But my youngest sister was three and she did not want to be there. 
She was uh, weeping and crying. She was having an Arlen moment today. <laughs> but it was in the portrait studio where we're supposed to be recording this for posterity. She didn't want to be held. She didn't want to be set down. She wouldn't want to smile. She didn't want to stop crying. We had the squeaky animals, you know, squeak, 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 trying to get that brief smile. But my little sister, Shelly, at age three, did not want any of it. But the photographer kept saying to my mother, don't worry. We can, we can work with this. Don't worry. We can fix it. And sure enough, uh, what ended up happening was after the photos were, were taken, she popped out one of those little plastic floppy disks, uh, the key from the era, walked over to a computer, popped it in, and the images came up. And bit by bit, she was able to fix up this image. Uh, she took some of the red out of my sister's cheeks because she would have been flushed with crying, and now she kind of had a normal skin tone. And um, she was able to open the eyes enough, right, to just manipulate the eyes so they were a little more open uh, so that they didn't look like they were, they were squinted from all the tears. And a little tear that had gone down her cheeks and landed on her dress, she was even able in 1997 to go in and remove the little tear stains. Friends, I have to tell you, the picture from this day that I remember so vividly as a child is still hanging in my house. And if you go to my house in Virginia where I grew up, you can see this picture. We look like the happiest family you've ever seen. You would never know that that day was one of misery that I remember 25 years later. And isn't that, friends, I think, uh, an image of what we do in our own physical financial, social, and spiritual lives. We are very keen to present the best parts of ourselves and to say, everything's good here, everything's fine, everything makes sense. And that was 1997, that's 25 years ago. Nowadays, with the, the phones in our pockets, you could take a picture of me and make me handsome enough to be on the front of a men's health magazine. Um, I have no business being on the front of a men's health magazine, but if you were good with your phone, you could make that happen. We could all take our selfies today and take off 25, 30, 40 years of our age. And we could present that to the world and say, look, not only am I a good person, not only am I um, healthy and happy, I also don't age so much. And you can trust me that I'm an authority on what makes things good and right in the world. And so Jeremiah's words of prophecy here about our hearts being desperately sick and deceitful above all things, um, they seem to us to be anathema. Who wants to show their heart as being desperately sick uh, and uh, full of deception? Um, and so the Bible is at odds with the rest of the world on this matter. The Bible has what the theology types call a low anthropology. A low anthropology. Anthropology, the study of human beings. Uh, the Bible, they say, has a low anthropology. Meaning that the Bible does not think human beings can do a whole lot of good apart from a relationship with God. Um, the Bible says that if you give humans rules, they won't follow them. If you give humans warnings, they won't listen to them. If you give humans blessings, they'll claim those blessings as their own strength and power. And if you give human beings corrections, they'll respond only with resentments. This is what the Bible says about human beings. And if you were to look at the heart behind the portraits we give to the world, if you were to look at the heart of any human being out there, you would find that in their own way, uh, ways unique and individual to every one of us, 
we have our own heart sicknesses and heart deceptions, and we are all pretty frail and fragile. Time and time again, God calls human beings stubborn, futile, rebellious, wicked, enslaved to self-harming passions. The prognosis of man, according to God, is not good. And yet, despite all of this, Jeremiah's insistence that we are like spiritual tumbleweeds, despite all that, there's more to the story. Because if that's all God is going to do is tell us that we're spiritual tumbleweeds, if God is only going to paint for us unflattering portraits, well, I can see why nobody would want to follow him. But instead, what we have um, in the ministry of Jesus is love in the midst of our reality. Love in the midst of our reality. Um, In our sermon this morning, uh, our reading from uh, Luke's Gospel, we have what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It sounds very familiar to another passage of the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And the scholars say, well, Jesus probably said some of the same things to different crowds, and that's okay. Maybe a bit of a stump speech from Jesus about the nature of reality, and he gives it to different people at different times in different places. Um, But what we find is that Jesus gathers with this massive crowd, people from Judea and Jerusalem, people who would be in the know, but also people from Sidon and Tyre, people who would be out of the know. And they've all come to Jesus with their family portraits left at home because they want healing. They want wholeness. They want health. They want exorcism from the demons of their life. And they all run to Jesus because they say, Jesus, um, here is my life as it actually is, and I need your help. And when we come to Jesus, when we see Jesus, he begins to speak about, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, blessed are the ostracized, the reviled, the slandered for their faith. As Jesus talks to the people in this language, he's seeing them as they really are, weak and frail, hungry for righteousness, um, righteousness they don't have. They're weeping at the tragedies of the world, some of which was not caused by them, but some of them might have been caused by themselves. Um, Jesus sees uh, Winston Churchill just as Graham Sutherland did, and he sees the crowds in the same way. Every wrinkle in their clothes and every wrinkle on their faces, Jesus knows what it's like behind the portrait. And so what we come to learn from Jesus' ministry is that heaven's gates are open and welcome for the weak, the poor, the hungry, the real us, not the versions of ourselves we put on the family portraits. And Jesus is the reason for this. You know, all our um, images of Jesus, by the way, just to clarify in case you didn't know, they're all wrong. There's a lovely, you can turn around and look, there's a lovely portrait of a Jesus figure in the back of our church, got a halo behind his head. Um, it's, it's, it's not right. <laughs> um, all the pictures of Jesus and the portraits of Jesus we run into, they tend to depict Jesus as sort of a, a maybe a, a white person. He always, always has blue eyes. I don't understand that. Um, sometimes he has blonde hair. He looks like a, a Swedish supermodel. And um, he's usually very reverent and serene in some capacity, maybe praying. And these portraits of Jesus, which you can find there, they're okay as far as it goes, but we really have no um, actual photograph of what Jesus looked like. We, we just don't know. Um, there's this whole Shroud of Turin thing that the Roman Catholics believe. It's a long story. I'll just tell you, probably not accurate, probably not true. You can ask me about it later, but we don't know what Jesus looked like. And yet, um, the New Testament writers go on to say um, that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. 
meaning that in some way Jesus is this walking, talking, living, eating, breathing, crucified and risen portrait of the God of heaven. That Jesus is the image of this invisible God, that whatever Jesus displays and shows in his character and his personality, it's a direct reflection of the God of heaven. And so when we talk about Jesus being an image of the invisible God, it's the Graham Sutherland kind of image, not an idealistic image which only shows God at his best. But indeed, it is the one that shows God at his most real, a Graham Sutherland portrait of God. Jesus, his love, his caring, his denouncement of self-righteousness and his trusting um, not in the flesh but in the promises of God, his insistence that God is for everyone, that is an image of the God of heaven. It is a flattering portrait of God, to be sure, but understanding the crucifixion like we do, it is a portrait that God, um, of God it is a portrait of God that humanity took out back and chopped into pieces and threw in the wood fire because we didn't want to see God as he really is. We wanted God, the God of our projections. But even though the Bible has this low anthropology, a dim view of what human beings are capable of, a dim view of human potential and goodness, it has a very high view of God's love. It has a very high view of the saving work of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we find that sick hearts and deceptive hearts are made whole and hale and trustworthy. We find that sick hearts are cured and deceptive hearts are set straight. And by the power of the gospel, people who are tumbleweeds begin to set down roots by the great river. And on top of it all, the kingdom of God is open wide for people who do not deserve it. I wonder if Graham Sutherland painted your portrait today in all of its reality, in all of its realism, would you be comfortable hanging it in your house? Probably not. Probably not. It might be a little too real. Would you be interested in displaying an unflattering portrait of yourself uh, if that portrait were true? That's the question raised to us today by Jeremiah. Are you willing to embrace the low anthropology of this Bible if it means that the love of heaven meets you in your places of weakness and powerlessness. Let me say that again. Are you willing to embrace the low anthropology of the Bible if it means that in return you receive the love of God in unimaginably beautiful and blessed ways in your life? Are you tired, friends, of being a spiritual tumbleweed and ready to plant some roots by the river of God? That is the question for all of us today. Because as the text tells us, those who embrace the low anthropology of the Bible, rejecting their own power and trusting not in their own deceptive hearts, but in the promises of God, um, those people are those trees, rooted in the river, bearing fruit, serene in the midst of all of life's troubles. And so this morning, friends, I tell you, uh, don't burn this low anthropology portrait presented to you in Jeremiah 17. Don't burn it. Don't get rid of it. Christianity may not be a flattering religion, but it is a true religion. We human beings are not so big as we make ourselves out to be, but that's okay. Despite your own strength, follow the lead of the Lord. Think a little less of yourself and discover the love of heaven in your life. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a On Sunday, Jesus.
Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.